Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Your grace is sufficient for us, Lord, and you tell us that your burden is light and your yoke is easy. And so this morning, Lord, I pray that we would come to you, all who are weary and heavy laden, and even those who are not, those who are doing great. May we come to you, and as we get into your word this morning, I pray that you'd speak to us. We do believe and trust in the power of your word to transform us, Lord. We believe your word and know your word is true, and it sets us free. It breaks up the fallow ground. It's a lamp into our feet. It divides between the soul and the spirit. It's a light into our path. And so we trust, Lord, you will speak to us through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can you say hello to a couple people before you sit down, please? All right, everybody, you may be seated. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and turn to the book of Luke. And while you're turning there, uh, just a couple announcements, not a lot of announcements this morning. We're headed into uh, school, a lot of kids are starting school, so just just keep the kids in school, the teachers, and we start a a new semester. I know that um, the Lord wants to minister to those students, and we need to pray that the Lord keep those schools safe. And uh, that those precious little kiddos will be nurtured and tended to. And most importantly, that there be a revival in those schools. So let's, let's be in prayer for that. So it's a good reminder as we start school. Um, this Wednesday, we are beginning the book of 1 Corinthians. So we just finished Romans. Uh, this past Wednesday night, we had a, just a really amazing time where we took a little interlude in between Romans and 1 Corinthians and just had a night of prayer and worship and praise. And it's just amazing. Every time we, we do that, time flies. It's, I think after an hour and a half, we all look up and like, is it over already? It's just amazing. It was a great time. So pray that there will be continual fruit from that and uh, pray that the Lord will bless the teaching of 1 Corinthians um, some of you know, if, if, if you haven't been coming on Wednesdays, we've been taking a pretty broad brush view of the Scriptures and moving through the New Testament uh, quickly, as quickly as we can. Um, coming to some of the chapters in the book of Romans, it was really hard to move quickly through some of those chapters, but uh, we finished finish that in about four months, the whole book of Romans, and so... Uh, the book of 1 Corinthians will probably be three to four months right in there, but if you will uh, make a commitment to come on Wednesday nights for three or four months, you will have gone through with the body of Christ corporately the whole book of 1 Corinthians, unless the Lord comes back, and then um, we won't have to worry about it. <laughs> I will be out of a job then. And the good thing is the worship group will still have a job, but I pastors... We'll be out of a job. So this morning, I think that's all I have to announce. Yeah, the rest of the stuff is in the bulletins. You know, we have uh, retreats coming up, men's retreat, women's retreat in uh, September, and information's in the foyer. Information is online uh, as well for that. So we are working our way through the book of Luke. We are in chapter 7. If I can draw your attention there. 
And we're going to work through the section of Scripture from verses 11 through 17. And so uh, let's look at that together and we'll read through it and then we'll look at it a little more closely. And I'm actually going to start in verse 9. So we kind of capture the chapter before that a little bit. So it says in verse 9 of Luke chapter 7, it says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, a centurion soldier who had faith in Jesus. He marveled at him and he turned around and he saw or he said to the crowd that followed him, he said, I say to you, I have not found such a great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house, they found the servant well who had been sick, that was the centurion soldier's servant who was sick. Jesus healed him from a distance. And then in verse 11, it says, Now it happened, the day after that he went into the city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. And when he, had came, uh, when he came near to the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and he touched the open coffin. And those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother, and then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding regions." And so as we follow Jesus, we step into this scene, which is, I, I love the Gospels because that's what it feels like. It feels like we're just stepping into these scenes, traveling with Jesus, watching Jesus, experiencing the things that Jesus is doing. And so as, as, as we do that, as we step into this, we see that he's demonstrating power over death. That's what he's doing. He's showing that he has power over over death and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning is the power of Jesus over death it reminds me of what was said in John chapter 10 10 where it says a thief does not come except to steal to kill and destroy so all of those things stealing killing destroying those are all things of the enemy, those are all things of the earth. Whenever we see those things, experience those things, we know what the source is. It's the enemy. It's Satan. And that's what he comes to do. That's his plan. That's his agenda. And then it says, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. So you see the contrast. So it gives us an understanding of, one, of a way to look at the world and way, a way to view the world to where we know 
where the source of all the problems is coming from, where we understand the destructive nature of the enemy. And as we read what Jesus said in John 10.10, it reminds me and makes me think about how seriously do we take the attacks, the threats, and the things of darkness. The Bible says that we are to put on the whole armor of God. And the reason is, is so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. How seriously do we take these things? How um, concerned are we with our own walks and the application of the Bible to our lives, that we walk in obedience by faith to the Lord, because that's our victory. Our victory is walking in the truth of God, and that's walking in His Word, and we do that by faith. And so when Jesus says these things, we have to uh, really open our eyes and, in a sense, be awakened or alarmed to the realities of the spiritual warfare that is before us, but also understand the victory that we have in Christ. And so we walk in this victory, but the victory is in Christ, and that is how we are to walk. So that's why we're, we're doing this. That's why we're here. We're here to know of God, learn of Him, understand, and apply these things by faith to our life so that we're victorious. Reminds me of uh, the statement. I know a lot of you have probably heard this before, but Benjamin Franklin made this statement in regards to the Constitution when it was formed of the United States. He said, Our new Constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanence. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. But I find it interesting that even as our Constitution was written. And the explanation of Benjamin Frank Franklin is just that the, there's no permanence in this life, the ebb and flow. It's amazing to me when I look back at pictures, even like pictures from our church or pictures from significant events and see how in the last five years have things have changed. In the past 10, it's amazing how things change. But the one thing that all of us are constantly aware of because we're surrounded with it is death. This sort of ominous thing that's constantly around us. And, and, and maybe it's a, a death of a loved one or a friend that's constantly uh, in our thoughts. But the, uh, just the constant feeling of deadness. So just the, uh, the moment we're, we're born, we're on this trajectory towards our Death, And I know that, you know, you probably came here and weren't expecting to hear such a jolly message this morning, but it gets better. Don't worry. But, but th this, this understanding of death is so important. What's the whole thing about death? And, and wh why do we just experience it in so many different ways, this, this feeling of death and the, the feeling of deadness, even, if you will, uh, another way to look at, look at that is just the lack of life. And Jesus said, I come to give you life and that more abundantly. So where does life come from? Life comes from Jesus. When I think of life, you, you can tell and, you know, people, uh, you just kind of go around and do your errands or whatever you do and, and you meet and run into people. And there are just some people that 
they're, they're there, but they don't seem alive. They seem like a zombie, a dead person walking. And there's other people who are just full of life. So what is that? And what is the understanding of that? Well, you have to sort of go back and think about, well, what is death? Where did that come from? God didn't create the world for there to be death. Death entered the world, but it wasn't part of God's creation. So where does that all come from? And why is death a thing? Why do we have to deal with death? Well, it came through the disobedience of man in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. And it came by disobedience. Disobedience to God brought in death. We call that what? What do we call that? Sin. So sin, the Bible tells us that the wages or the payment of sin is death. So it's, it's through sin. Sin entered into, uh, at the Garden of Eden. Sin came in. Sin came in through disobedience. It wasn't in God's original plan. It wasn't in His design. His design was that He would create an amazing place with people to put in that amazing place to commune with God and experience life and that more abundantly. And then sin came in, killed it all. Ever since then, we've all experienced and have been experiencing death. And not just death physically, that's often how we think of it. Well, people die, we, but it's not just that. Maybe more importantly, it's death spiritually. So what happened in the Garden of Eden in the relationship with God was severed, and what did man do? He hid. He's hiding from God. That's what sin does. It makes us hide from God. If there's uh, some way, shape, or form that we're hiding from God and not presenting ourselves to God and being available to God, it's, it's because sin makes us do that. It's because even if we're a believer, we may have sinful things in our life, and what that does is it makes us want to hide from God. And so thanks be to God, he has a remedy for that even and a way to get back with God, to return to our first love if sin is killing our relationship with God, and that's to repent. And that's a word that is rare often. You don't hear that a lot, but it is the answer to restoration of a relationship with God. It's repenting of, of the things that are killing us, that are killing the things of the Spirit in our life, that are killing the life of of God that he so um, graciously has given to us and wants us to experience. And so when you start to put all these things together, you start to, to understand that the, uh, not only physical death, but then spiritual death is probably things that we're experiencing in our heart and in our inner person that we don't like, but we maybe not able to put the finger on what's going on, but we just feel dead. Have you ever said, I just feel dead? I noticed a lot of you this morning are drinking coffee. You probably woke up and just feeling dead. And you've gone back and forth um, talking about banning coffee in the sanctuary. And I'm afraid to do that. I I've <laughs> feel like uh, you're going to, you know, Stephen me and martyr and start stone. It's a serious issue, your coffee. And I get that. I'm the same way. I love coffee. If I could have my coffee right here. I would be having it here, and but I usually don't like to eat or drink before I'm teaching, so I'll have it after. But anyway, there, the, that's a, a way that we think. Uh, we we think. Well, I just need to come a little alive. Some of you, if you're honest, you can't function unless you have your coffee. But 
and I'm not judging you, but I'm just saying that's a way to come. But you, you feel that like a way to come to life. It's because our, our bodies are getting weaker and, and dying and we need more and more things. The older you get, the more you have to do just to, to get through the day. You know, you, you're starting to spend amen, right? You started starting to spend most of your time, like a full-time job just to present yourself to society as a, you know, a normal uh, looking human being so it's this death is surrounding us but and I didn't have too much coffee don't worry but but here's the thing that's um, this is one way you know you're getting old Friday night I spent my Friday night at Costco so that's one way you know you're getting old amen so Friday night, let's go to Costco. Yay. So my wife and uh, Noah, my little guy, were at, at Costco. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems like they're getting a little skimpy on the boxes after, at least in my experience, in my Costco. They're not as uh, you know, generous with the boxes, so they have a lot of loose items. So anyway, I'm driving home from Costco. I'm on Main Street right over there just uh, in Louisville, I'm coming towards Flower Mound, and as I'm driving, just going to normal speed, but you know that kind of thing that happens when the light turns yellow, and then you're, you, you have a business decision to make. It's <laughs> stop or go, stop or go, and, and it's one of those things, and all the, there's so many things that are going through my mind. It's amazing when you start thinking about how many things go through your mind in a moment like that, I thought about a lot of these things later, but as, as I'm going, the, I get this yellow light, and I'm, I, I kid you not, I was thinking, I'm going to have to stop really fast, and those unboxed items in the back are going to be flying forward. So guess what I did? I went. I went for it. I went for it. And I, I don't know, there's different versions of what it means to go through a red light. The way I was taught... Yeah, I think this is a California thing. But the way I was taught, if you make it into the intersection, you're good. It doesn't seem like it's the same in Texas. It seems different here. It seems like if it turns red anywhere in the intersection that you've gone through it. But I will say, and I'm not proud of this, but it did turn red and I did go through it. And I don't think that's a good idea. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do that, and I know that. But what happens when you do that? Well, you start to look around. <laughs> That's the first thing you do because of what? Because of the law. Because, you know, I knew I was guilty. And so the first thing I do, I'm looking in my rearview mirror. Clear. I look to my right, not clear. There was a police officer in his car right there. And it was right in front of the police station. So that didn't, that didn't help either. But then I'm thinking, I knew I'm guilty. There's no, nothing I could do. Did he see me? That was the next thing. And, and so I could tell when, because I went through the red light, so that means his light was turning green. And I can tell he turned kind of fast. So then I'm looking in my rearview mirror. I'm like, okay. And then he was behind me a little bit, and I'm like, oh, maybe I'm all right. And then, yeah, he turned on the lights. And so I pull in, and I'm in a parking lot, and he's checking all my stuff. 
And I, what could I do? I, I'm guilty, and I'm not, I, I never try to talk myself out of a, a ticket. I don't know if you guys do. I never do that, because I, I know I'm guilty, and I don't, can't remember ever being let off of a ticket, and it's not my first ticket, let's just say that. <laughs> I don't get a lot of tickets, but I, I, I do get tickets, and I'm not proud of that either. But he's, he's back in his car, and I'm sitting there, and all these things, I'm thinking, oh, I got to do that traffic school online again. I hate that. And, and Tamar's, like, patting me. I noticed, I told her the other day, it's like, do you know you realize you pat me every time you think I'm stressed about something? Like, I don't even know I'm stressed, but she's patting me. And I'm like, I think I'm stressed right now because she's patting me. So I didn't know I was stressed, but, yeah, I guess I am stressed. She's patting me. So she's, she's just sitting there and says, it's okay, it's okay, honey, and all this stuff. And I'm, I'm just thinking about this is going to be how much it's going to cost and all these things. And the guy comes back and he says, I'm not going to give you a ticket this time. Yeah, I was like, I don't know why or what, or, but he didn't give me a ticket. And I thought, this is amazing. I deserved it. I was ready to receive my punishment, take it like a man. I was going to do those online courses to make my insurance not go up. I was willing to pay because I was guilty. I knew I was guilty. But he gave me what? He gave me grace. He gave me mercy. And where the law looks to come to uh, make me conform to it, and I realize there's Nothing I can do to conform to law. I'm straight up guilty. And the penalty that I should get, I deserve, but he gave me grace and mercy. And I walked away, and I just, I felt, I felt so great. I was so happy. And I was so thankful to the guy. I, I just said, thank you. I really appreciate that. And, you know, this is amazing. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I got to go back to my business. But I just wanted him to stay there and like hug him and say, man, I just, can I, can I pray for you? Because it's so awesome. But, but it just reminded me that's that's what the law does. It, it it tells us we're guilty, and it tells us that we have a fine. There's nothing I could do. I was guilty. I ran that red light, but he just gave me grace. I didn't deserve it, and I didn't earn it. And what happened as a result of that, I sort of came to life. I was very spunky the rest of the evening. I was like, that's amazing. Praise God. He's so good. And I didn't deserve this. And this is amazing. And it just reminded me of how God has changed the darkness and death in our life spiritually. And by his grace and mercy, we were um, guilty, but he gave us um, grace and mercy to be free from sin and death. He said, I have the power to condemn you, but based on what I'm going to decide to do, regardless of you and what you do, I'm going to let you off. I'm going to give you grace and mercy. But see, that whole story, it really ties in to this understanding of, of death that's entered in and, and how God has alleviated it because it all comes back to the cross. It's all alleviated at the cross. So, for example, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it's really good in explaining this. It says, And you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and your sins. So, in other words, he made us alive and 
he uses that, that terminology and that phraseology because we are dead spiritually and we are going to die physically, but Jesus did something to change that. It also reminds me of Romans 6, 3, which I pointed out part of that verse earlier where it says, for the wages of sin is death. But it also says that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So here's where everything changes at the cross. Everything is reversed that happened in the Garden of Eden. What do we call that? The fall. We call that the fall. Let's look at the fall. Well, that was reversed at the cross. And we, instead of the fall, we have this, this word arise, arise from the dead. But in this section of scripture, we're going to see Jesus demonstrate that. And I like what Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, if you've never heard of him, he was a preacher in the 1800s. And he, he said that Jesus' miracles were sermons for the eyes, where his teaching and preaching were sermons for the ears. So this raising of the dead man um, in name from Jesus is a, a sermon for us to see, but the implications are so vast and wide and so let's take a look at it. I really just uh, divided it in three different sections. If you're taking notes in regards to power over death. And one is the dead, two is the power, and three is the glory. So let's look at the, the dead part and move on as fast as we can from that part. So in verse 11, it says, Now uh, it happened the day after that he went into a, the, uh, a city called Nain, so what was happening is uh, we're following Jesus. He's on the move. And in the first part of chapter 7, we looked at last week, but what happened was Jesus was in Capernaum. And as he entered into that city, that was a city around in the northwest portion of the Sea of Galilee. This was where Jesus would stay in his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. This was his sort of his... Uh, home base, if you will, and he would go out from Capernaum, but he did a lot of miracles in Capernaum. And as he was in Capernaum this particular time, there was a centurion soldier. He was in charge of a hundred men, hundred men under him. And he would, uh, because of his position, would be able to tell people, go, come, and they would do it. So because of his seat or because of his position he was able to tell people what to do command them that tells us that he because of his position he had authority authority that was given to him because of his position and his understanding then of authority his understanding of rank and order as a military man it helped him understand Jesus because previously to this particular visit in Capernaum, Jesus had been there before and done many miracles 
before. So he's coming back, and this man had a servant, a young boy who was a servant that was sick and ready to die. This centurion soldier had a benevolent, kind heart to this servant boy. He probably would have considered him like his own son. He was desperate. He had no alternatives, no options, nothing he can do. And he saw Jesus and he cried out to Jesus and asked Jesus to heal his son. And then as Jesus is approaching his house, he says, I'm not worthy. Don't go in my house. Understanding that there's a big difference between Jesus and him. Understanding that there was a big difference between the holiness of Jesus and the unholiness of himself. Understanding that Jesus was not a sinner and that he was. And that's a common reaction that we see when people have the reality or the realization of who Jesus really is. They're, they're blown away. They don't want Jesus to come near. They're, they're frightened by him because of his goodness, of his power. And so he said, just don't come to my house. Just heal him from a distance. How, how did he know Jesus can do that? How did he understand? Well, because of his life as an unworthy sinner, he, on a horizontal earthly level, was able to have power and authority to tell people where to go and how to go and all those things. As he understood and saw Jesus in a more correct light, an all-powerful, all-knowing God, he said, if I can do that, then you don't need to come and touch him you can just say the word. And that's where Jesus said, that's a faith that I haven't seen that faith in all of Israel. Jesus marveled at his faith. And then as we just finished that little section, the servant, it didn't even say Jesus told the servant to be healed. It just says he was healed. When those who came to Jesus to ask him to heal the servant, when they came, they went back when Jesus said, I haven't found faith anywhere, they went back and the, and, and the servant was healed. The servant was sick and ready to die and the, the servant was alive. So with that scene, now they're leaving Capernaum and they're going about 20 to 25 miles south and west, if you want to look at a map in your Bible sometime, to go to this place called Nain. It was about a day's journey. But what we find in our text is that there is a large group with him. These were the people traveling with him that had just seen him do this miracle of commanding, this miracle of power, this miracle of authority. And so he had his disciples. And remember, sometimes the Bible refers to his disciples as the twelve. But not all the time. Sometimes... He refers to disciples just as this large group of people who sort of like an entourage, but they are following him because the word disciple means learner. So they're following him because he's teaching them. Not all of those large group of people believed. Many in John 6, 66 left Jesus when he began to say things that were hard saying. So they left. So these large group of people are trying to figure out who Jesus was, what he's doing. They're 
They're enamored, if you will, by the miracles. And remember the book of John? At the end of the book, it tells us that Jesus did so many miracles that it wouldn't be able to be contained in all the books of the world. So what we find in the Gospels are not all the miracles Jesus did. They're just little snippets, little drop in the buckets. He, he did thousands and thousands and thousands of miracles. And so this group is traveling with Jesus. And imagine in a day's journey, as they go to Nain, what they would be talking about. Imagine as they're walking, and something that blows me away is just how easily they got up and walked 25 miles. So they're probably you know pretty good shaped people back in those days. But hey, let's let's take a walk to Waco today or something. And uh, okay, let's, I know it's a little farther than 25, but you get the point. Let's let's walk to Dallas even. You know, just okay, and then we'll come back the next day and walk back. But but think about the discussions. Think about the, the people in this group and think about the life in this group or excitement, you might want to say, as they're experiencing something amazing that's never happened like in that way on the earth ever. Uh, and this miracle that he did in Capernaum is on top of all the other miracles and, and Jesus is leading them and Imagine those discussions. Imagine the enthusiasm. Imagine the excitement. Imagine the joy. Imagine uh, the desire. Just I just want to be around this guy. I just want to be near him. And, and that was a, a fear of the disciples later, wasn't it? That Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to go. And they were just, you can't go. Don't, don't leave. And Jesus said, it's going to be better when I go. I'll send you a helper. But just the physical presence of Jesus was so amazing. I mean, they, they were with God. And some of them kind of knew it. Some of them knew it. Some of them didn't. But they knew I had to be around him. I had to be near. And if he wanted to walk all day to Nain, let's go. So this big sort of caravan of people are walking to the city. And that's why it says that many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd but then in verse 12, something different is happening. So you, see, you have like this intersect of two different groups of people. In verse 12, it says, When he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out. So quite a different picture, isn't it? So this, this large group of people walking, moving towards Nain with Jesus, following Jesus, experiencing the goodness of Jesus. And then just the opposite of that, you have another group of people coming out from this city, and it was a funeral procession. And it's, it's interesting because this man that was dead probably died on the same day that Jesus set out for Nain, not before. So sometimes we think, well, maybe Jesus heard there was a dead person here and he went there because of that. But they didn't keep dead bodies overnight because they didn't embalm bodies. So when someone would die... They would put burial spices on them, but that wasn't real hardy and protecting from the decay and the odors and things. So they got those bodies out of the city as quickly as possible. It wouldn't be overnight. The reason I say that is how interesting is that? 
when you start to look at the providential plan of God, meaning how he's able to orchestrate events in the natural, the natural things of life. So this is different than a miracle. So a miracle is when the supernatural controls and dictates and orchestrates things in a supernatural way from the outside. Here we're seeing him orchestrate people's thoughts, people's understanding, people's desires and in large masses of people so this meeting could take place. So as Jesus headed for Nain in the morning, it's possible that this man just died that morning. So on one end, you have all the discussion about, well, this son died and we need to um, take him out. We need to arrange and orchestrate for a proper funeral. And also that's going on all day while at the same time, Jesus is headed there to meet them, and they meet at the right exact perfect time. Why is it important to know that? It's important to know that because sometimes we look at life in a way where we're subject to what happens in this world, not factoring in the overall plan and scheme of God. So, for example, your life personally. The amazing thing about God is not only is he orchestrating the events of the world. So think about what he's doing right now in the whole world. He's orchestrating Ukraine and Russia. He's orchestrating our next president, the elections next year. You guys excited about that? He's orchestrating... Uh, these macro events that are going on in Israel and Syria and China. So he's orchestrating all these things. And yet he knows you personally to the extent where he knows right now how many hairs you have on your head. Right now. And the hairs on our head are constantly changing. So they, they you know, if you, and I'm not going to do I know we're not doing any jokes this this is serious but it seriously it changes so so he he knows he knows your thoughts so he he knows what you just thought right now he knows what you're feeling he knows what you feel right now and I love this about God because he is so big that a word that is often used for his bigness is he's transcendent. He's, he's so big. And that's why I always encourage us to have the biggest correct thoughts of God we can absolutely have. And when we do, we won't even get close to fully having the biggest and correct, most correct thoughts that we can have because our minds are infinite and it's, we can't even comprehend the infinite, eternal God. But I want to encourage you to keep working at bigger and bigger thoughts of God because the bigger they get, the more accurate they get. And so this transcendent God is also imminent. So big words, but he's transcendent, bigger than anything we can compare to, imagine, think, hope, feel. 
But yet he's imminent where he's right there, knowing our thoughts, knowing how we feel, knowing the hairs on our head, knowing the tears we shed. Every single one, he knows every single tear that has come out of that tear. He knows that. And so that's why it's so important to understand this, this meeting has been orchestrated by God. It's not random. It's not happenstance. It's been orchestrated by God. But see, this is why for me I love, even though I often resist it, I love understanding that God already has good works laid out for me, that He is prepared beforehand, that it's not up to me to figure everything out, to make everything happen. It's up to me just to walk in what He's laid out for me. And so for that, I need to seek the will of the Lord. So that's where I spend most of my time is seeking the will of the Lord. Lord, what's your will for me? I want to hear from you. I want to, and, then, and then walking in what I can best conclude is, my will, is His will for my life. But when I read stories like this and see accounts like this, I, I understand way beyond his, his sovereignty and His ability to orchestrate things way beyond I, I could ever imagine. But it gives me great comfort to know and confidence as well when life doesn't look the way I think it was going to look when I walk in faith and obedience to the Lord I have great confidence that it was God's plan for me whatever it is and however it looks but see that's where the confidence comes from the confidence comes from seeking the will of the Lord and finding in his word what he wants me to do so I believe God orchestrates and leads us by the Holy Spirit. And because of that, the Holy Spirit wrote the Word of God. So I should have a scripture that I can land on. And I could say, Lord, your will be done. Just show me what your will is. And I open my Bible and I pray and he tells me. And because of that, I five years down the road from now, I can look back and say, Hey, I did the best that I can do to walk in the will of the Lord. And so whatever is happening in my life now, I have confidence that is the will of the Lord. How about if you just do your own thing? If you just do your own thing, if you don't know how to seek the Lord, then you're going to make decisions and live your life according to what you feel is right and wrong the problem with that is the bible says there is a way that seems right to a man but the end of the way is destruction in other words when we just do our own thing but we put a christian stamp on it lord bless this but we don't seek God's will, and in reality, we don't want God's will, but we put a Christian stamp on it, then we will find ourselves walking a path of destruction. And really, when we are believers, we are to surrender our will to God. Did you hear those songs we sang today? I surrender all. That's, really, that's pretty serious. Like, when you sang that, did you mean that? I had to ask myself. I did. I surrender all. And I'm thinking, 
God saw your thought right now. He saw you making fun of me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's why I'm not in the worship group. In heaven, I'll be able to sing good, though. But here's the thing. Do we mean that? This is serious business. Do we, when we sing I Surrender All, do we mean that? And what that means is we say, Lord, your will be done. I'm done with my life. I'm done with my plan, my will. You orchestrate my life. You dictate my life. You lead my life. Just tell me what to do. Just show me. What was that other song we sing? I lift my hands and worship group, help me out. I lift my hands and do something. Lay my whole life down. Did you mean that? Yeah, I lift my hands up and lay my whole life down. Yes, that. But come on, are we just singing that? And I believe that that makes all the difference. Are we playing church? Are we playing with God's plan? Or are we really just saying, Lord, take my life, it's yours. You know, that's what it means to follow the Lord. My life is yours. Do whatever you want. And when we understand the goodness and faithfulness and love of God, then we can do that. And when we do that, think about Paul, the apostle. Think about the confidence he had. Think about how easy it is if you go through the book of Acts and see all the things that he went through. And think about how easy it would be, and and this happens a lot, where people say, well, the Lord's leading me to do this, whatever that is. And then it doesn't go according to plan, and then all of a sudden, well, now the Lord's not leading me to do that. So we get this idea that the Lord is double-minded when we're double-minded. And if the Lord is leading us in we have confirmed it through scripture, then we stay the course and whatever befalls us, may it be as long as it's the Lord's will. Imagine the Apostle Paul, as, as soon as things got tough and difficult, I'm out of here. I, I'm, I think I was wrong. I think I read the will of the Lord wrong. Why? Did you see what happened? They were trying to stone me. That's why. But you, you know what he, he, Paul would say? Whatever was a gain for me was a loss for Christ. You know what he would say? It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. You know, you know what he would say? For me to live is Christ. So the things that happen because of his surrender to God did not deter him from moving forward, but they actually fueled him from going forward even more because he understood and had confidence in the will of God and the plan of God for his life. Why? Because it was based on the word of God. It was based on what God said. How did that all start for the Apostle Paul? When he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, the first thing he said is, what do you want me to do? That's where it starts. So it's easy to become a cultural Christian, but it's a whole different thing to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then follow through and do that all the way to the very end. And what is the confidence that we have? It's the calling. 
and the calling that's substantiated on the word of God that, that we have established this bank, this inventory of the word of God that we're standing in. So when things get rough and difficult and we want to quit, what do we have? We have this bank of the word of God that we're standing on. And because of that, we keep moving forward. So in verse 12, Jesus, he comes near this gate and there's this dead man. This is this providential meeting. This is one of those things that's easy just to read through in our devotion and not realize all the things that are going on. So here's a dead man. Here's one group coming out of the city. And by the way, the name of the city means beautiful. Nain means beautiful. So you have this, this mourning, weeping. They would, uh, in, in their funerals, it'd be like a parade where they'd have the body and they, they would have uh, the, all the people in the city would be there and there would be hired wailers. They would hire women. So there's jobs for everybody. They would hire women to cry. And they were so good at crying. They're like, well, we want to hire you to cry. So when there's a funeral, you could be in the front and you cry so good that we want everybody to understand how sad we are. So they were professional criers. And so you have these dead, mourning, grieving, dark, heavy-hearted people intersecting with this other group of lively, passionate, full of the love of Christ and the awe of Christ intersecting each other. And it says this about this man who is dead. It, it adds on to the grief, which I think is an amazing picture of life in this world. It's, it's grief upon grief upon grief. And that's why Jesus said, in this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In other words, the, the world is heavy, it's dark, it's grief, it's heartbreak, it's heartache, but Jesus is the one that makes everything okay in this world. He is the one, nothing else. So it adds on to this. So this son that died was the only son. She only had one son. Does that remind you of anything? An only begotten son. And she was a widow. So she had already experienced the death of her husband. And so probably because of the death of her husband, she had clinged to the love of her son. Her hopes were probably wrapped up in her son. In those days, it would be very difficult for a widow to be employed, make income, have family. So the son would probably be her security too. He would be, be there to help her with her loneliness. He would be a companion to her. He would help her with her security. He would help her with her future. In other words, probably her whole hope was in her son. And he was dead. Gone. Nothing she could do about it. And that's often where we find ourselves in the world, in certain places, when the things that we've put our hope in, our security in, our future in, when they die, we will find ourselves in a place like this woman. 
So she had no hope in this world, in other words. So in the world, there's nothing, nowhere to go, nothing to do. It was over for her. Her son was dead, meaning her hopes, her dreams, her goals, her aspirations, her future, all gone. And then this crowd was feeding off of her pain and her misery, and this is where Jesus shows up. Isn't that interesting? Where does Jesus show up? Where everything's dead. So that leads to the second point, and that's the power. So in verse 13, when the Lord saw her, those are some of the most touching, poignant words that you will find in your whole Bible. The Lord saw her. Do you ever sometimes think in your dark days, in your dark hours, if the Lord's there, if he cares, if he knows what you're going through? This brings back to remembrance. Hagar in Genesis 16, 13, who was cast out into the wilderness, and she named God the Lord who sees me. The Lord who sees me. This may be you this morning. You may feel everything's dying. Your hope is disappearing. You're in the wilderness. And the Lord wants you to know, I see you. That's what he's saying, I see you. And that that word seeing means that he beheld her as taking her into his heart. So that's the way he was seeing her. He saw her as taking her into her heart. And you you think about now the providence of God working, that you'd be right there in the darkest, most desperate place of this widow where everything's dead and he shows up. This is often where God shows up. And he sees her, but notice this, he had compassion on her. That's such a foreign concept. Do you, do you realize and understand what a foreign concept it is to have a God who has compassion? There's no gods like that. In the Greek culture, all these gods, these Zeus and all these gods, they weren't compassionate gods. There's no such thing as love. Even in the, the gods of uh, Islam, the gods of Hindu and Buddhism and all. There's no compassion and love. It's just subject. People are subject to this high deity. But Jesus, he looked on her and he had compassion on her. And that's amazing because not only does God see us, but he's, mo- he's moved to do something about it. That word compassion is different than pity Pity is like driving home and seeing somebody on the side of the road with a flat tire and saying, oh, man, that's messed up, and driving home. Compassion is seeing that person and stopping and helping them change it. Compassion is like this 
story of a little eight-year-old girl who told her mom she was going to go to the store to get uh, something, a loaf of bread for the family. And as she went, it took a long time for her to get back. And the mom's like, where is she? she? She's not coming back. And then finally, a long time later, she comes back. And the mom says to the little girl, what took you so long? And she said, I ran into a little girl who had a doll, and the arm of the doll broke off. And she said, oh, that's sweet. Did you help her fix her doll and put the arm back on? She said, no, Mommy, I helped her cry. That's compassion. And this is how Jesus is with us. He sits with us. He cries with us. We have a high priest who understands. He he literally hurts when we hurt. Did you know that? In Matthew 25, 4, it says that as you do it as unto the least of these, what happens? You do it as unto me. You know what that means? That means when someone is hurting us, it hurts God. That's the compassion of God. And so Jesus is moved with compassion towards this lady and he said to her do not weep and then in verse uh, 14 it says and then he came so now he's in action but notice he told her not to weep before he actually did something and that's how faith works and that doesn't mean it's wrong to weep in fact in the book of ecclesiastes Three, it tells us there's a time to weep and a time to mourn, but there's also a time to laugh and there's a time to rejoice. Jesus is saying this is not the time to weep because your weeping, your mourning is going to turn to joy. The greatest thing that could have ever happened to this widow of Nain occurred because she was allowed to go through the worst thing that could have ever happened to her. And so Jesus says, don't weep, don't mourn. And he came and he touched the open coffin. Does that get your attention? Is that something a Jew would do? You don't touch open coffin. You don't touch dead people. But Jesus does. Because Jesus, when he touches things that are dead, they come to life. So he touches it. And those who carried him, they stood still, so like the pallbearers. And Jesus said, young man, I say to you, and here's the word, arise. You might want to circle that. Arise. And so he who is dead sat up, and now he starts talking. Can you imagine that? I wonder what he said. We don't know what he said. But now he's talking. And then here is what Jesus did. He takes this alive young man and he presents this alive young man to his mother. It's like a gift, wasn't it? So he, he feels her pain, understands her pain. He brings to life that, was de- that which was dead and then he presents the son as a gift of grace, of mercy, of love. And then what happens? Verse 16, the last thing. When Jesus works, he gets the glory. Fear came upon all. Why fear? Because of the power. Power is something that we're afraid of. 
And this is the demonstration of the ultimate power. This is scary. Power is scary. But when that power is used benevolently, it's beautiful. So they had fear and they glorified God, saying a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. And the report about him went out throughout Judea and the surrounding region. So this power of death, this message not only for our ears, but for our minds and for those people there, for their eyes, that Jesus was able to demonstrate whatever is dead in our life. First and foremost, if we are dead spiritually, We've never been born spiritually, born again. Jesus went to the cross so that you can be born again, that your sins could be forgiven, and you could have a place with God in eternity, that your name would be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Subsequent to us being born again and Him having the power to forgive us of our sins, then we can walk in the newness of life. And if you are a believer here this morning and you've lost your way, you've been caught up in sin, you've left your first love, you're hiding from God and the things of God, you're running from the plan that He has for your life and the good works, then He would say to you, Arise. That's enough. It's enough to to keep acting dead and it's enough to keep rejecting God. I have amazing things for you. It's time to come alive and walk in the newness of life and the power of the Holy Spirit. He would say to us today, I have so much for you. Arise, arise and walk. Keep your eyes on Jesus and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for my brothers and sisters that have gathered here with us today, and I pray now that you would bless them abundantly beyond all they can ask or think. I pray that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would energize them in their walk and their life. Lord, we live in a culture where Christianity is literally dying, and we need a revival, Lord. We need an outpouring of your Spirit, Lord. So visit us, God just like you did in this story. Bring us to life, Lord, and help us walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you have power over death, and most importantly, one day when these bodies die because of your son Jesus, that we will live eternally with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let's stand. Amen. So we're going to worship the Lord. If anybody uh, this morning would like prayer, Just as we sing this last song, just come on up front. Our prayer team will be happy to receive you and pray with you. God bless you guys. Let's worship the Lord like we're at the throne room of heaven. Amen? Amen. Amen.